Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about collaboration. And I wanted to talk about collaboration because I've been feeling really screamy at the baby boomers that I work with because they're really terrible at collaboration and at, at power sharing. And so I feel like this is a political moment where we need to think more critically about what it means to collaborate and what it means to be a good collaborator and de definitely what are the signs of bad collaborators. And so I have been thinking a lot about collaboration. I think not just baby boomers, pretty much everyone is yeah, bad. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> feeling away about the boomers, right? Um, I kind of think of collaboration as like an opposite of competition. I mean, maybe opposite isn't the best way to frame it. Like, I think it's a good antidote mm -hmm. to competition. So obviously in my um, economics study, competition is thought of as like the absolute best way to organize resources and energy in any setting at all. But it's like clear that that's not true. Like if we think about classrooms, a better way to uh, produce productive learning environments is to promote collaboration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about like the best way to improve educational outcomes and to decrease like college attrition rates, besides lowering the cost of college, to put people in study groups and have them have students work together. So it's clear that competition isn't the best solution in those environments. And it's clear that it's not the best solution for our economy because people are I mean, they're so unhappy. Well, we have talked so much on the podcast about anxiety and about how competition creates anxiety and cycles of anxiety and how anxious Americans are. And also about precarity. And I feel like this is a moment where the precarity of the economy, the precarity of the political climate, the, the uh, precarity of the, of the ecology <laughs> that we right, are watching collapse, all of those things are contributing to a scarcity mindset, which drives people towards competition and the idea that resources are zero sum rather than the fact that they can be shared. And I think that because I, I'm sort of watching as a, as a politico this sort of presidential you know, campaign unfolded for 2020 and thinking about how this is the, the first moment in my entire lifetime that I've seen um, social welfare ideas circulate so widely. And I think that that's a real opportunity to think about collaboration, like from an interpersonal level, like you and I do on the podcast, to a structural level in the way that we organize like national resources to a global level, it's time. And so I've been thinking about ways that we think about collaboration um, in the workplace in particular, obviously, People need to collaborate about decision-making. That seems like an obvious place. But I think that, for me, one place that we don't think about collaboration being so important is in interpretive frameworks and how we describe stuff. So I don't think that we collaborate on how to narrate our own existence or narrate the story of our department or our institution or our state or our nation well. Those things tend to be dictated from the top down, and so there's no buy-in, and so it can't really transform, it can only dominate. And so I've been thinking a lot about what it means to invite people to work on building collaborative interpretive power to change the way that they narrate their own existence, the things that are important, the thing that, things that they desire, like what they want out of life, what makes them happy, what they care about. 
There's just like that's a place where I think we need to do better as a culture at collaborating. It's tough though because like collaboration depends on like a mutual sense of trust and respect. Mm-hmm. And with inherent inequality, like people are used to being taken advantage of and exploited. Mm-hmm. And I think people avoid collaborating sometimes because they fear um, being exploited or that their work isn't going to be appropriately recognized. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, in the way that things are structured now, like achievement oriented behavior is like all of about individualism Mm -hmm. and even when collaboration takes place a lot of times it's not recognized yeah i mean i've been thinking a lot about collaboration in the me too moment and i think i said to you i was kind of glib but serious yesterday at the bar that i just sort of feel like this is a moment especially the kavanaugh confirmation hearings were a moment where you really see how white men in particular but not exclusively but people in power want maximum flexibility and control with minimum accountability. And so I feel like this is a moment where accountability has to be a larger part of the public conversation about what labor looks like, period, like full stop. Whether that's unions scaled up or whether it's about, you know, the collaboration that we're doing on a project at work or whether it's the collaboration of our intimate relationships, that kind of conversation about accountability is completely lacking. And so I feel like a lot of the interpersonal struggles that are also amplifying the anxiety of the moment are about who can exert massive amounts of control and flexibility and deflect as much responsibility and accountability as possible. So there's no way, I think, to collaborate without accountability. It's uh, totally impossible. It's hard to produce a collaborative environment because people are going to take advantage of their privilege and the money that they have. And so that's difficult. But also I think sometimes there are people who have to rely on collaboration because they don't have access to certain resources. And collaboration can be an avenue where people are able to access resources that they wouldn't otherwise have. Although that uh, it, that complicates collaboration sometimes because like what if you have to collaborate with someone whose values or ethics you don't agree with? Like in our, uh, we're from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and the Walton family, which of Walmart Wealth, they produce a lot of art programming and fund a lot of art development in the area. So a lot of local artists and American artists work with that family. And I imagine that there is like a complicated relationship (laughs) because, you know, patronage is in some ways a kind of uh, collaborative effort to get more um, art and culture. I mean, it's just a politics of extraction. You know, it's like intellectual fracking, I feel like patronage is. It's just sucking out the resources in a way that massively um, striates wealth and power to the top and leaves the breadcrumbs at the bottom. And I've been thinking, I just saw a bunch of stuff flying into Roanoke the other day about um, STEM, 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 all day long STEM. And um, cool, but um, you know, I'm just thinking as the ecology collapses, you've got all these individual tinkers in their workshops and their garages who don't know how to scale up <laughs> or work with, and who are so alienated from the modes of production of like food and stuff that they are going to be completely worthless in like literally 10 years, and they have no idea 
Like they have no, they're not networked into communities of practice. They're mostly isolated and alienated. We talk a lot about masculinity being, you know, a byproduct of that alienation. And they don't have any sense about how to navigate that. And so I have been thinking, you know, just in the ambient sort of Virginia scape about that being a mode of extracting as much labor as possible, as quickly as possible, and not replacing it with any of the kinds of skills that people need to collaborate. And I've also been thinking about romantic relationships because I feel like um, sort of watching the young generation like not mate, right? You're seeing all these like panic reports like, you know, Gen XYZ, whatever number we're on, they're not having sex at all. And they're not dating and they don't know how to interact. And they're basically all misanthropes. And so that's very sad slash interesting to me and also has some, I think, you know, non-reproductive futurity potential <laughs> that could be interesting. But also I think the larger problem is that they also do not know how to collaborate. And so it's like nobody has taught them that relationships are collaboration. They should be getting into relationships where they can build stuff. And the stuff that they could be building, they could be building skills. They could be building structures. They could be building habits. They could be building architectures of self. That, that the thing that you're doing in, in relation is labor and that it, it can be collaborative, that both partners can contribute or multiple partners can contribute to, you know, a different kind of outcome that is not predatory romantic behavior. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that it's so difficult for young people to collaborate? Um, I think it's because their parents are dead inside, and so they have shitty models. I think it's because they are already... Up alienated from labor. I just think, I mean, I worked a real job when I was 16 with a bunch of adult people that was like totally a team, even though it was capitalism happening. And so they're not working jobs, right? They're, they are overcommitted to sportsing and after school shit. They're terrified of sex because it's a sex, a sex negative culture. They have no sex education at all. They don't live in progressive spaces. I mean, the rural kids are totally fucked because they have no education or public library. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on and on. I, there's like literally nothing, <laughs> right, that they can latch on to except for some micro progressive spaces on the internet, right, where people are like trying out weird shit. And, but there's not, there is no sense of play, you know, play is my thing. And I bring that to the podcast really hard as like a jouissance, it's like a, a raison d'etre as a way of being in the world. And they don't know how to play. They're terrified of failure. Well, I mean, maybe they don't know how to play, but also the, there's not a lot of opportunity for play because wages and economic mobility are so low and it's exhausting like yeah. to make a living. I've never worked in a work environment that's collaborative, even at like a restaurant. So, you know, at restaurant work, the servers were all like pitted against one another because like if you got a better table, you would get better tips and you were trying to hustle, you know, your tables at the expense of sometimes your coworkers. And I know sometimes if I would like help out another server, they would be like, you're making me look bad, you know? So there's like a certain kind of like individual impulse in that kind of work environment that doesn't make sense for like, customer service or like the quality of the work environment and th these like I worked with really intelligent people and they were so deeply unhappy and unable to play because of that competitive impulse. I mean I just uh, one thing that I find that gross I write a lot about the failures of American liberalism uh, and one thing that I find really gross is like 
we circle jerk about idealism, right? Like, oh, we're so progressive, and oh, equality for everybody, and oh, blah, 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 blah. And um, at the end of the day, everybody's just totally bitter inside. And those are, like, that happens simultaneously all the time. It's like the Janus head of American exceptionalism. Like, both are happening simultaneously. And I, I think that that is, fu- that's, I think, one of the things that, like, grinds people down. It's like, on the one hand, there's all this, you know, self-congratulatory Americanism that's crap. And then on the other hand, it was like, but my day-to-day life just sucks <laughs> so bad. Capitalism is so terrible. My wages suck. Inflation is going to skyrocket. You know, and so what do they do? They latch on to bullshit hope instead of actually doing the work to build new progressive structures of engagement with people that they care about. And so, I, you know, I, I'm sort of thinking about you know, feminist collaboration as a space uh, to think through these things, and not exclusively, certainly, but the black feminists had this right at the turn of the century with lift and climb, right? Politics, like I am going to live. If I can climb higher, I'm lifting every fucking human around me with me. We are all going together. And that's sort of how I feel like I function, you know, in Fayetteville and in Arkansas generally and in, in so much larger circles is like, okay, you're in. We're all going together. <laughs> we are all going to climb up and build. And you need to bring two people and you need to bring two people. And you need to bring two people to this, like, progressive arc, right, of new politics, of collaborative politics. I'm kind of uh, infuriated because I think collaboration is kind of like a feminist uh, discourse. And, like, cooperation is seen as a feminine trait. And I'm like, how fucking broken is the patriarchy if, like, cooperation is a progressive thing? (laughs) Like, it is so broken. Yeah. So, I mean, it is good. And, and it is good that you're doing that kind of work and that we're, you know, women are taking the lead here. But but the, listen, I mean, if we're talking about the cis-hetero white dudes, they are in total fucking crisis. They're in crisis. They're clear about it. None of them have any mental health care. They're trapped in lives that they hate. They fucking hate themselves. They're drowning in self-loathing and alienation. A bunch of them are at a breaking point. And so this is really a cultural moment where the thing will shift, right? The capital will break down. The men will not be able to handle it. They have no emotional skills. The cishet women are going to divest from marriage because it's not going to actually buy them homes anymore or bring them a living wage. So they're going to stop doing it because it doesn't suit them. They're not tripped into the romance narrative. They're not even fucking. So, I mean, this is a real moment, I think, of social breakdown that has the potential to be really transformative for people who can see it as an opportunity to reframe power in ways that's shared. Now, do I think that wholesale American culture is going to embrace that? No, but I'm talking to everybody who's listening who has a vested interest in changing how their lives work, you know? And I think that, yeah, it sucks that, that the, you know, obviously that the, you know, master's tools won't dismantle the master's house, but also the, the master lives in a McMansion that, he can't afford the mortgage on, and so we need to reappropriate um, that power and distribute it in ways that I think that are that are more equitable. Yeah, men need more friends <laughs> and <laughs> non-solo hobbies. Yeah. It's hard for them because I, they think that you know everyone's out to like get them, you know, and especially with like the Me Too movement and their like reaction, a lot of men's reaction to it. Is all too convenient paranoia. Yeah. And also but it's like, false consciousness about mm-hmm. how shitty they've been in their lives. Mm-hmm. But it's like, no, 
we're trying to get you guys to do better, you know, mm-hmm. for all of us. I mean, we are trying to call out um, perpetrators. It's a collaborative effort from women so that we can all do better, you know. I mean, you know how I feel about call-out culture, though. It is fundamentally toxic. I mean, either we believe that people can change or we don't, and that's, like, kind of a hard and fast thing. You have to choose a side on that. And it's very hard. I get I, I get trapped up in the, you know, perpetrator nonsense because we live in a culture with zero sex ed. So it's very hard for me to be like, oh, nobody fucking told you that this was trashy, shitty, violent behavior. Also, you were totally socially rewarded for it your entire life. Psych. I mean, that is not that is not accountability either. It's just really not. So it just seems to me that real collaboration creates a generosity of spirit. It's like you need resources. Here's some mental health care. Every and you get some mental health care, and you get some mental health care, and you get some. But if you don't have mental health care and you don't have sex ed, you can't just be like you know you're a trashy dude. Child, all that's not helpful. That all that does is alienate them further. They cannot be called back in to collaborate. So that, that seems to me to be a hard and fast thing that feminists do not fucking get at all as a practical matter of community building. That, ta- that calling out people. And you know how I feel about shame. It is the most corrosive emotional leverage that you can exert over other people. It solidifies bad habits and feelings that are extremely negative and corrosive. It is very bad to you to wield shame as a political cudgel. It is it fundamentally undermines community. There's no way to to reorient shame, especially in this puritanical Christian c- culture, and reclaim it as a progressive space. It's impossible to occupy shame in a way that's productive. So instead, I would probably offer vulnerability and generosity as models of reciprocal engagement. You know, I mean, really, all the people I think that are worth reading on power, but Paulo Freire in particular, talks a lot in the pedagogy of the oppressed about what it means to educate the oppressor and what it means to liberate the oppressor. And that means that the oppressed has to take that on the chin and that's how power works. And so suck it up. And I sort of feel like that's right. Like, yeah, you're going to have to do vulnerability and it's going to suck a bunch. And also you're going to have to you're gonna have to be generous with people of false consciousness. That's going to suck a bunch. And anyway, you're going to have to do it. <laughs> and that's the only way out. The end. That's a tough position to take, though, because you're talking about having vulnerable communities and people who have like, oh, yeah. been exploited. There's like, no other way. open up to trust. Yeah, but the rich, rich, rich people are going to be like, could I please divest my wealth into your precarious community i you know what i have seen the air of my ways i am willing to deal with more risk in my future if you have less risk that is not a thing that's coming that's not you cannot you know persuade power to give up power it's not a persuasive enterprise so all you can do is leverage it right and I think the only way that you can do that is through exposing false consciousness in a way that is dialectical and emotional and about generosity and reciprocal care. And there's no, you cannot, there's no other way to break it from the bottom. I do think you have to convince people to give up power. There's a whole like program of education that would have to take place for that to happen, including exposing the negative cultural narratives that we're operating under. But I think the best case scenario is that we go hardcore socialist left and redistribute wealth wealth from the top down and call it a day. That's the best <laughs> best case scenario, right? Is that we're like we're gonna we're gonna do hardcore antitrust. <laughs> we're going to massively reinvest in community right resources and things. We're gonna have a hundred percent guaranteed employment with a living wage. Um, and you know, we're gonna 
we're going to have to restructure federalism in a way that does not allow the states to hoard or steal rights based on the relative you know, population of white people in them. Otherwise, the whole thing, this is just a fantasy, I think. I mean, the only way that can happen is if we take power yes. from <laughs> the current leadership. Which is know? not a persuasive event. That is not, that is like, you know, it's bayonets and barricades. And I mean, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not civility politics. It's not respectability. It's not, it's not discursive in that way. And, but I think that we can model it on the micro level. And, you know, college towns are the best place to do this because the people there are employed still in many cases for life. So you've got a relatively stable population of marginally well-read, you know, intellectuals who can, in some cases, be turned to good. And the problem is the siloing of the academy and the hyper-individualist, hyper-competitive culture. But those people are tired of it. And especially the generations younger than the boomers, but the Gen Xers, my generation and younger in particular, are interested in different shit. And we have bigger lives outside of the academy that are not just about, you know, academic productivity. So I think the fact that you know, there's a larger conversation now about what it means to be a public intellectual, and that is occurring at this moment of breakdown of public education, breakdown of environmental, you know, stability, and redistribution of wealth, I think it creates opportunities to think about um, what it means to build more intimate communities of practice where we live around the people that we spend the most time around. Like, I'm not going to do intimacy with little Joey Biden. I want Joe Biden to go back to Credit Card Mountain or wherever he's from, right? And like, leave everybody alone, like you've done your thing. And I need everybody else to sort of think about what it means to have an opportunity to reframe large-scale political life through the lens of collective value and not through individual achievement or winning or teams or those sorts of, you know, metaphors of action. Yeah, there has to be a way to get that messaging to larger America because... Well, we've got two microphones. That's, that's what I've got. <laughs> exactly two microphones. Yeah. But, I mean, a lot of people voted for Donald Trump. And you know who's not tired of all of this is the people who have all the money. They're not tired of this culture. So, I mean, like, campaign finance reform has to take place. I don't know where you start because, first of all, it's really hard to message to a lot of America. Um, and... A lot of people are deeply racist and <laughs> afraid of other people. And I don't want to minimize white paranoia and violence because that would be foolish. But at the same time, as somebody who does race work all day long, this is a very different political, rhetorical, and social environment that has ever existed in American life. Even though I generally make my living from drawing comparisons between the, this historical moment and other historical moments, there are free radical variables in this moment that have not existed before. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez being one of them. Um, Ilhan Omar being one of them. There is a different sense of agenda setting and what it looks like. There's a realignment of the quote-unquote left. I think climate change is going to create a bunch of exigencies that, that the wealthy whites are not going to be able to message around or consolidate power through. I just I feel like things are more in flux and less stable right now than they have been in modern memory. That modernity is not so foreclosed in this moment. They may foreclose again in the future. Obviously, Americans tend towards inertia, lack of inertia, and stasis. But on the whole, yes, it's hard to message. But I think that watching the presidential campaign unfold on the Democratic side 
should give people pause that the words are changing, the ideas are changing, what people want is changing from their candidates. And it's not going to go from zero to 60 necessarily so fast in one electoral cycle. But having Trump at the top of the ticket again in 2020 is going to be very good for shifting the, the message on the ground, especially, <coughs> especially in the House and especially in states that, that voted for Trump. And also, best case scenario is that he is a cautionary tale to never return to again. And it's, it's useful to have those. America doesn't have this. Nixon did not last long as a cautionary tale. We immediately went to Reagan. And this, I think, is so much larger scale and so much more nefarious that we are probably due up for a boogeyman in the United States. And I, I think it's probably okay that he's a rich, white, nouveau riche, you know, non-wasp kind of fellow because that's really what new American wealth looks like. It's crass. It's not respectable. It is pussy grabbing. It is anti-intellectual. It's fundamentally grotesque. It's perversion. You know, and I think that there is a utility in having a different kind of monster at the top of power to really change how people feel about it. I mean, it's this election is super important because, I mean, we need like immediate policy changes to minimize damage. It's not going to happen, though. It's not going to happen. It's going to be a longer. I mean, that's you can't change a whole culture's mind at once. So it's going to unfold over 10 years, not over two. I mean, that's why Joe Biden is. Like ahead in the polls right now, he's not progressive. But he's but. not going to win. He he's not he's not a serious human. He's not a serious human. He's not a serious candidate. And here's a guy who can't collaborate for shit. And I'm telling you that that you're going to see a bunch of outrage against him. He's going to say real dumb shit, racist shit, just fundamentally stupid stuff. And people are going to come out against him. And I don't know what the Obama people are thinking and letting him run because he's going to wreck Obama's legacy, which Obama, I think, cares very much about. Um, but he's, he'll end up having a seat. I just, I just, but, but also he is, he's an example. He's a, in, in rhetoric, we call it a synecdoche, right? He's a repository, he's a singular person of an entirely larger trend. And so if the best thing that happens about Joe Biden's candidacy is that he becomes a lightning rod for critiques of his entire generation's fucking failure to be kind and generous to other Americans, then I say load it up. If Joe Biden wants to be the guy at the center of the fucking firing squad about his entire generation's failure to understand the challenges of his, of the, his time, then he should eat all of the shit, all of it. I say let him have it. And I think he will. I think he will. I think he will leave a totally disgraced out of this campaign cycle. And I say, you know, you did that to yourself, sir. You know? <laughs> and so, you know, I he is a paragon of a man who cannot collaborate. And and also of a generation, he's a little bit older than the boomers, but of people who refuse to share power, right? Who can only think about their own narcissism and their own, you know, self-gain. And he is a fundamental exemplar of the critique of anti-collaborative culture. And so I say let him burn. I mean, the way we even think about the presidency is not helpful. It's a fetish. Yeah. Movements where, like, a charismatic leader can, you know, get all of these people on board with political ideas. But here's the thing. Americans mostly are poorly educated and have short attention spans because capitalism, etc. So they are like, hey, you have an identity politics that aligns with my lifestyle. Ah, I will support you for a while. And then it's like, oh, but you don't actually know how to do the thing. It's like, oh, well, here's one that's closer. Right. So we don't have a culture of sustained political conversation. 
we would do better, I think, in collaboration if we did. If we created space where there was, uh, we were trained in dissent, really, you know, but that has sort of been written out of, of education uh, from K through 12 all the way to higher ed, which makes us worse at collaboration, I think. Mm-hmm. It's just dangerous to put all of this, like, political ideology onto one person, you know, like one influential person can change a political conversation. I mean, but the thing that's happening is not um, a wishful thinking on the American people's behalf, or I mean, it's not entirely that. It's the fact that what a charismatic leader does in the executive is to suck up power. And so during the Nixon administration, we called it the imperial presidency because all of his, you know, dastardly deeds, right, all of the articles of impeachment that he was impeached for, all of those were part of him trying to suck up power into the executive and, and keep it away from the uh, the legislative branch, which is where democracy is really resides. And so here you're seeing it not just in the executive branch, but in the judicial branch, which makes it, which is really where, you know, obviously the threat is, is in the courts. So, I mean, I don't know, as I think about what it means to lean back from this toxic overworked culture of anxiety and white paranoia and stratified power, it just seems to me that if we can work collaboration into all of our structures for being, we are going to probably be better off in the long run. I have to agree with that. I mean, we <laughs> we do collaboration. <laughs> we do collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about how you envision building more collaborative environments. But, I mean, I don't know how with the economic imperatives – right now that we can make collaboration uh, I mean, a <laughs> We gotta go back to unions. There's no way around it. So it's 100% union organizing. I did a talk in this tiny little town in Arkansas last week and it was a bunch of uh, really lovely uh, Christian folk of the uh, Protestant variety. It's just a smattering of Protestants. And they were like, what do we do? Tell me what to do, right? Because that's what Americans want is they want a fascist dictator to tell them exactly what to do. And so, of course, I point out this irony. And I'm like, you've got to figure out for yourself where your skills fit in, right? Where you can make a difference in your community. And But I said, if I had to pick one thing that Americans committed themselves to ideologically for the foreseeable future, it would be collective bargaining 100%. That is literally the only thing that has the power to reshape labor in a way that is bottom-up and not top-down. And that's not to say that unions are perfect. They're full of people, so they have all the problems that people have. <laughs> okay, But they are the only thing that are a bulwark against the consolidation of governmental power. And they're a place where there is a natural fit in talking about collaboration, what it means to redistribute wealth and in a more equitable way. And so even with all of their problems, and they have them like any other organization, unions are really the only way to change the conversation about labor, period. Well, and I also think like the state providing more social services. The breaking point is going to be social security. And so I don't know if you just saw the recent report that came out this week. Uh, We're recording here at the end of April. And they say social security is going to be insolvent by 2022, which is like, 14 minutes from now and that is like a shitload of people who are going to die because they don't have their like $1,400 a month check to cover their basic expenses and that's where I think the rubber is going to meet the road so I don't know as 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 I think about collaboration it just seems to me that um, we're going to have to do it around end of life 
and we're going to have to do it around unions and we're going to have to do it in the micro relations, you know, with our intimate partners, our family, our intimate partners, where we're thinking about what is it that we can rebuild or build together that is collaborative and is not about just the projection of, of power onto another for edification or gratification. <laughs>